Pray with me, if you would, please. Father, you have trained our hearts to sing that praise. As long as our Savior, our Redeemer, and friend, Jesus Christ, is seated at your throne, no tongue, no opposition, no enemy can undo our salvation in Christ. Lord, as we come to this text of your word this morning, and we find that truth to be proclaimed to our hearts from your word, I pray that it would, again, consecrate your people, that we would find our identity in Christ. While there are so many things about our day that could define us, being a mother or a father, being a a husband, a wife, being a laborer, being a neighbor, these things could all become identity shaping. But Lord, would you make all of those things to come under the reality that we are in Christ. For eternity, we are his people. As we preach about Christ this morning, I pray that those folks who are friends of ours, who are in the room visiting perhaps, or longtime attenders, that if today they hear Christ, and if today your spirit draws them once and for all into salvation, we would acknowledge that you, Lord, are the giver of this increase and harvest. Father, we pray you'd be honored in the preaching here and the preaching that goes on in faithful congregations all over our city. Uh, Honor your name. Lift high our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Please take your Bibles with me if you have them and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll read verses 10 through 14. Hebrews chapter 1. And verse number 10, the word of the Lord proclaims, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. He will add his blessing to its reading. You can be seated and children, you can be dismissed to children's church. I, um, I think about a couple of texts like John's prologue in John 1 or Colossians, texts that magnify the, the deity and the superiority of Christ. And there are some wonderful texts, but I would have to say I conclude today after our three weeks in Hebrews chapter 1 that there is no text with such a weighty proclamation about the superiority of Christ over everything else. This is magnificent declaration of the Son of God. We saw when we opened that the Son is the final word. Then the author transitions into dispelling any question about, but aren't all heavenly beings superior? No, this 
heavenly being. This God the Son is superior to all other heavenly beings and angels. And now lastly, I want to share with you this sermon. And I want you to know at the outset that I intend this to be very pastoral. Especially in our first point. As I think about the frailty of our very existence, I want you to know that verses 10 and 11 speak vividly to the reality of our withering condition. Would you take a moment and listen carefully to the reality that your cells are dying? That you are not evolving, you are decaying, even as you sit here. And would you hear in the presence of that truth that you, like grass, are right now withering in the sun, would you hear the truth about the sustaining Son of God? So I want to speak those things to you. And this chapter breaks down into two wonderful sevens. The chapter breaks down into two amazing sevens. The first one is in verse 1 through 4. There are these seven statements that Jesus, the Christ, is the final word. He's the final word. All the other prophets spoke, but Jesus is the last word of God. There are these great statements of seven. Listen along. Jesus is better than the prophets. Verses two and three say, he's the heir of all things. He created all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, He made purification for sin and then sat down as it was completed. That list of seven, the author, I think, understands the significance of this numerical completion. And he gives us seven things that are said about Jesus that say, this is the last thing, Jesus. Then in verses 5 through 14, there are seven cross-references, several of them coming from the Psalms. There are seven cross-references that say to us, just in case you thought everything that came from heaven was just better, there's some things in heaven that are better than other things in heaven. Jesus is better than angels. In verses 5 through 14, these seven Old Testament references. He says, first of all, in verse 5, you are my begotten son, begotten son. Uh, There might be in our minds somewhere this definition of begotten that leads us to wonder, you mean birthed? Like Jesus is the born son? Like there was a time when Jesus was not and then God birthed the son, begotten? You know know what the word begotten means? Monogenes. That's that's the the Greek word, monogenes. All of you are Greek scholars in the room and you just went, wait, I know that word. Yeah, we refer to it all the time about our marriages. Monogamous, not polygamist. He doesn't have a bunch of these. This is the begotten one, the only, the only true. And we know that that is true as it's proclaimed today. Remember last week? God, on the day of God, proclaimed the Son of God to be divine. When? Yes. The eternal today of our omnipresent God, the God who is all the time, proclaimed him to be. Now, 
If you say, well, can you be more specific? Sure I can. The resurrection. There are three New Testament texts that tell us that Jesus is proclaimed to be God, the Son, at the resurrection. Proclaimed in power. So the first thing it says about Jesus being better than angels is he is the only Son. Psalm 2.7. Secondly, in 2 Samuel 7, this is the Davidic covenant God pronounces to, announces to David, I will be his father. Next, in Psalm 97, 7, we find out that not only is he like angels, but the angels worship him. In Psalm 104, he makes the angels to be flames of fire in the wind. Now, I want to expound on an idea. I talked to the elders about it this week. I said, well, I, I don't know for sure, but I want you to think about it because I think it's I think it's great. Seven things that tell us Jesus is better than angels. Seven things that tell us Jesus is better than angels. In the middle of those seven, there's this statement. He makes the angels to be winds and flame of fire. I don't know for sure if those words are all in the right order. It's possible. Just listen and let let your own study go from here because I'm not telling you this has to be the way it is. But listen. I'm not sure the words are in the right order. It might be he makes the angels like a flame in the wind. Seven statements, Jesus is better. And here's one, he makes the angels like a flame in the wind. So when the angels come to the Son of God and stand in his presence, like Mount Sinai, shaking like smoke. I don't know, maybe, but that would be fun to study, wouldn't it? Okay, you go do that. His throne is forever and ever. His anointing is above all of his companions. That's us. He's been anointed. And his anointing is above the angels and above us, his companions. He laid out the foundations of the earth, Psalm 102, 25. He sits in rule and reign alongside God the Father, Psalm 110. So here's what I said before. John 1 is amazing. There's some stuff about Jesus in John 1 that you should read and memorize. Colossians 1, there is some stuff about Jesus that you should read and memorize. But to come to Hebrews 1 and to read over it and to understand it and to walk away wondering, is Jesus the Christ co-equal and co-eternal with God is to require you to deny the authority of Scripture. You would have to abandon sola scriptura to say the word proclaims truth. You would have to abandon that to read through Hebrews 1 and think, I'm not quite convinced yet that Jesus is the Christ. Look, it's not just that, friend. If you read through Hebrews 1 and say, I don't know that Jesus is the Christ, you not only have to abandon the authority of Scripture, you have to abandon Christianity and all of its promises as Jesus is the foundation and hope for all the promises of Christianity. We have no salvation. We have no hope. We are of all people most miserable if, in fact, we read through Hebrews 1 and scratch our head and say, I'm just not convinced. So in the sermon this morning, if Christ is all of this that is laid out from eternity past, the question is, is Christ simply a gift to us pertaining to the past? Is Christ simply better than those old-time prophets? 
Is he simply better than the angels that we read about in ancient literature? Who is Christ in my need presently and in my need for eternity? That's today's sermon. Today, in this sermon titled, The Sustaining Lord, I want to unpack two things. In verse 10, 11, and 12, the first thing that we want to lift up is that Jesus is sustaining us in our affliction. Affliction. A couple places, including Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compares us in our existence to a field of flowers or grass in a couple different places. And, and in those, there are two images. One is, one is when the flower or grass is thrown into a furnace and it's just burned up like that. The other one is when the morning sun rises and the dew evaporates and the blazing heat of the sun starts to slowly wither up the grass. As I preach this point, that he sustains us in our affliction, I think I'm preaching to one of two people. Just one of two people. You're in one of those two groups. You're either in the group that says, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm not aware that I'm withering, but I suppose that's true. The sun has come up, the dew has evaporated, and the heat is starting to beat down on you, and you are failing. And you don't notice it. I mean, if you look back far enough, you notice it. You know, if you're in your 50s and 60s, you look back and you go, I am failing. I think he's on to something. As I preach today about the sustaining Lord, there are others who say, no, you don't have to convince me. I'm, I'm like the grass that's been thrown into the furnace. My failing is happening quickly. And that might be for a variety of reasons. It might be emotional or spiritual. It might be, it might be health. It might be age. But as I preach this, I want to share with you the hope of Jesus Christ in our affliction. And then secondly, if he's not only with us in our moment of physical affliction, if our, if our hope in Christ is in this life only, then... But his sustaining us for everlasting salvation. Jesus not only is our Savior, but Jesus will always be our Savior. Not only is our Savior, but will always be our Savior. Okay, let me get into those two. The first one. The Christ, Jesus, sustains us in our affliction. That's our first point for today. The Christ sustains us in our affliction. This is the sixth quote of the seven, found in verses 10, 11, and 12. It comes from Psalm 102. Uh, if you don't have a handout, you're always free to walk back and get one. I think today's handout's going to be really helpful. If you don't have one and you don't want to walk and get one, you need to turn to Psalm 102. Okay? Psalm 102. Whew, the psalm begins with, hear my prayer, O Yahweh. Hear my prayer. And then look, if you're going to Psalm 102, there is what's called the subscription. That's kind of the paragraph heading. Look at the subscription. Hear my prayer, O God. This psalm, 102, being the prayer of one afflicted when he is faint, pouring out his complaint before Yahweh. A prayer of one afflicted. This is our prayer. The first half of Psalm 102 is like this. The writer laments 
his own decay in the curse. I am falling apart. I drove, I drove to Chicago Friday night. It rained the whole way. Heavy traffic, highway traffic. Lights on the windshield. I'm getting older. I'm putting off going to see a doctor about my eyes. And all day Saturday, my eyes were worn out from that rain and glare on the windshield. And there were parts I had a hard time seeing. I just closed my eyes and prayed, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) And here I am today. That's nonsense. Chris is an elder. He just said this. That's that's nonsense. Thank you, Chris. I did not do that. You should not do that. But my eyes were tired. And I could pray in that one simple little way. I am faint. That didn't used to be a problem. So the writer laments the decay of his own life. In Psalm 102, verses 3 through 9, we read like this. My days pass away like smoke. My bones are burned like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. All of my days, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name like a curse. I eat ashes like bread mingled with tears for drink. (sighs) Sooner or later, something like that will find its way to your lips. Sooner or later. It might be emotional. There are times where your emotional or mental distress the affliction of your soul will be for you more weighty than any physical affliction. There are other times where you are living with the very present reality that your body is withering like grass. Our days will pass away like smoke and our bones give away. 20-some years ago, out of college and seminary, we, my wife and I did a lot of ministry to young people. And the first church that we were at, our responsibility was to minister to a younger generation. And one of my favorite inroads to conversation is to ask a young person, how old are you going to be when you die? Because they con- they're confronted with their initial response, where they think, old, I'll just tell them, I'll be old. Wait, wait, I don't think I can tell them that, I don't know that. Right. Let's, let's have a conversation about that. I don't know when the grass will be burned up. But I do know all of us wither away like grass. And in that confession, it is totally appropriate for you to say, I feel like I'm eating ashes that are mingled with my tears. But the psalm doesn't end there. In comparison with our own short life, what is our life? It is even a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. In comparison with our short life, we read about Christ. Psalm 1, verse 11, or Hebrews 1, verse 11 and 12. The heavens and earth will perish, but you remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. In comparison, the heavens and earth, which are longer than me, are going to pass away. And like a garment comes and goes, the Lord will survive them. Listen to what F.F. Bruce says. They will grow old, the heavens and earth, and they'll disappear one day. All of this will disappear from being as it is now. But the Lord who created them existed before they existed. He will survive their disappearance. As one man in his lifetime outlives successive suits of clothes, so the Lord will see this universe pass away. But he himself is eternal and unchanging. So the psalm about how short your life is and about how certain its failing is doesn't end with you. It ends with the Lord. And if, if you think that compared to your brief existence, wow, heaven and earth, that's a long time. Well, sure, but let's dial it up. The Lord who created it outlives it like a man outlives a shirt. The second half of the psalm, it continues... Psalm 102, verse 12. The lamenting man lifts up his eyes to see God where he finds his great hope. In verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You will arise. For the Lord appears in his glory. Though all of my hope in this life's longevity is dashed. I lift my eyes and I look. And I see there the Lord enthroned forever. Now, listen, you have, perhaps in your lap, you have your spot held in Psalm 102 and your spot held in Hebrews 1. Here's what I want you to understand. The Spirit of God is using Psalm 102 in, Psalm, or in Hebrews 1 to make a point about Jesus. But in Psalm 102, the psalm is addressed to Yahweh. God the Father. The cross-reference by the author of Hebrews uses it to tell us about God the Son. In 102, referring to Yahweh. In Hebrews 1, referring to Jesus. And here's what we have to see. Listen. We have to see that Psalm 102 and Hebrews 1, both halves of the psalm. I'm withering like grass. My bones are failing, and I lift up my eye, and I see one enthroned forever. Both of those refer to Jesus. Jesus is both of those. Jesus is both of those, friend. We read our catechism this morning. Why is it that we had to have a Savior like us? So that our Savior could say, in our moment of despair, I am failing. Jesus could say, I've been there. On your behalf. He is the afflicted pouring out his lament to the Father. He is the persecuted saying, My days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and withers. All the days my enemies taunt me. Psalm 102 is on our lips. But it's a lament of Christ Jesus. But it doesn't end there. The second half of the psalm constitutes a confession about the Christ, the one who lamented. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. 
Yes, this world may crucify you, but you are enthroned and will outlive this world the way a man outlives his shirt. Psalm 102:26. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. Like a man gets rid of an old coat and puts another coat on. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Isaiah 51.6 says this. The heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. By an incomparable grace, we go to Psalm 102. And in Christ, we lament the first half. And we celebrate the second half. By an incomparable grace, what is true in Psalm 102 and what is said in Hebrews 1 is our promise. We receive the everlasting salvation that comes after the lament, after the demise, after this life has passed away, after this tent has put off. This is our salvation in Christ. Not the angels. It was through the sun that the universe was made. The angels are but worshiping spectators when the earth was founded. He made it. He outlasts it. In him we proclaim ours is everlasting life. All we like grass wither and perish. The Bible says it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. I want to give you that same imagery I gave you last week. It is definitely appointed to man once to die and then to be judged. We will go and we will stand there before the judgment. And as I shared with you last week, according to Matthew chapter 7, it is the judgment throne of Jesus the Christ. He says in Matthew 7, many will come to me and proclaim on that day, didn't we do all these things? And they'll say, kurios, kurios, Lord Jesus. Didn't we do these things? And on that day, what will your claim be? You are dying, and the day is coming. How much longer until your judgment? And a bunch of young people in the room might say, oh, a long time. Give me a long time. I'm guessing 80s or 90s. And a bunch of people in the room who are 80s and 90s go, I sure hope not. It's too long. How old? Judgment's coming. And when you stand before him, would you want to say, I'm like one of the shirts? Or would you say, I'm with you? And as long as you are allowed to be here, I will be too. As he lamented, the proclamation is made. Your throne is forever. As we lament now, united with Christ, we say our life in him is forever. Christ Jesus sustains the afflicted. Whatever's afflicting you, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will not fear evil. 
for he is with us. Not only does he sustain the afflicted, because what, what if I said to you, listen, in whatever it is that you're, you're frail under, in whatever it is that is overcoming you, listen, Jesus will get you through and you'll be able to endure the little bit of this life that you have. Okay? That's great. I, I would sing about that, Jesus. But what if I said, but then it's, then it's over. And it, when it's done, it's done. And then I, I don't know. I don't know about eternity. That would be sad, but it's not biblical. So let's go into our second point. Jesus sustains our eternal salvation. Look at verse 13 and 14 in Hebrews 1. And then, if you don't have a handout and you want to Turn your Bible back to Psalm 110, the seventh of the perfectly numbered cross-references is found in Psalm 110. And it quotes from Psalm 110 saying this, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Three things in that statement we want to unpack. The first one is, To none of the angels, okay, so we're talking about superiority, Jesus is better than angels, because this was not said to any of the angels, sit at my right hand. This, sit at my right hand, this is Jesus' verbal proclamation at the resurrection. Jesus, uh, did I just say Jesus? This is the Father's verbal proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. I hope I said that correctly the first time. Did I say it right the first time? No, I said it backwards, right? Okay, it's fine. We'll move on. We'll edit that later. (laughs) This, sit at my right hand, is the Father's verbal announcement upon crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now, you have done what we covenant together to do. Titus 1, 2. We covenant together to do this. You have accomplished redemption for my people. Now, Sit at my right hand. The most frequently quoted psalm of the New Testament is this one. Because of what it tells us about Christ's ministry after the cross. Jesus interceding for us does not end at the cross. In many wonderful ways, it begins at the cross. The fact that Jesus is seated in the throne room Reminds us of texts like Revelation 7 where angels and elders and all living creatures come before the throne of the sovereign God and they bow down and say, worthy, worthy, worthy. Jesus is seated. Now, as we get, especially into later chapters in Hebrews, we'll find the beauty of what it means to have a priest whose work is done. He's made atonement. He's made satisfaction for sin. He doesn't have more work to do. It's done. We'll find the beauty of what that means. But for now, the fact that you have a sustainer who's seated. You ever ask your children to finish a job? And you say, okay, um, before supper, all the toys in the living room need to be put back in their bin. Okay? And, and then you go and start making supper. And it's quiet. You turn around, and there's children sitting in couches and chairs. <laughs> Why are you seated? The work is not done. And you might think, as you read this, that Jesus being seated somehow means passivity or 
indifference maybe, because it seems like when the kids are all seated in the living room and there's still toys in the floor, like they're kind of indifferent to what needs to be done. And I, I want to say to you, I want to I unpack a couple bullets that remind you that the fact that Jesus is seated doesn't mean that Jesus is passive towards you. So listen, when Stephen was facing martyrdom because he was preaching the gospel, when Steve was, Stephen was facing martyrdom, the heavens opened up and Stephen said, I see the Lord Jesus standing in the heavens. Jesus was attentive to Stephen's martyrdom. When Saul, a man on his way to, uh, Saul of Tarsus is on his way to Damascus, Jesus stops him. He's going to go persecute Christians. That's not nice. The Christians, it would have been terrible. Some of them, it seems very probable that Saul of Tarsus was killing some Christians. Some of them arrested, some of them thrown out and, and maligned, but it seems very possible that he was killing Christians. He's on his way to Damascus to do just that. And Jesus stops him, knocks him to the ground blind and says, no more. Now you're going to be one of mine. The seated Savior. When Peter was rescued from Herod's prison, it was by an angel. An angel who came from the Lord, according to Acts 12, 6. And listen, Jesus is better than angels. We can be thankful for heavenly ministers like angels, but you need to understand where they came from. Look at verse 14. If you still have, a spot, you still have your thumb in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, flip that back over, and look at verse 14. Who are these heavenly ministers? They are ministering spirits. I'll give you a second. Make sure you're in Hebrews 1, 14. Ministering spirits. Next two words are? Okay, okay, some of you. Thank you, Mike. It's okay. They're ministering spirits. Everybody now, sent out. They are otherwise unhelpful if not for our seated savior who says minister go help and he sends them out so when peter is in herod's prison someone sent that angel that someone is our savior jesus christ who is seated at the throne of god we know that jesus christ has sent us his spirit coming in his name we know that Jesus seated is interceding with the Father, ensuring our acceptance of the Father back into the eternal garden. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Christ is exceedingly faithful in our care. He speaks to us at the throne the way he speaks about Peter. He says to Peter in Luke 22, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Our salvation right now is being kept by God the Son at the throne, praying for us. Satan will not have them. That leads us to the second part of this one verse. Not only is he seated at the throne of God, so he's there in access, praying on our behalf, ministering on our behalf, but all the enemies are made a footstool also. All the enemies are made a footstool. 
Who are your enemies? And it's not the Chicago Bears. It's not the Minnesota Vikings. We're going we're gonna to go bigger than that. Hebrews says, until I make all the enemies a footstool for your feet. Also from Psalm 110. Our greatest enemy is the curse, sin, Satan, our fallen will, these worldly powers and principalities, death, and the grave. These are the enemies. In the end, there will not be any enemies left standing. They will be as a footstool. Uh, the picture is of a king who's conquered an opposing king. And one of the signs that the conqueror is final is that that king would come into the courtroom, into the, into the throne room, and the conquering king would literally rest his foot on the neck of his opposing ruler. That's the enemy being made a footstool. The book of Revelation tells us this is coming, Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He now reigns forever and ever. Now, a quick question, because we are talking about Jesus being better than all of the angels. I want to spend a moment making sure you understand that one of the enemies that I listed before, above the fallenness of our flesh and our will, the curse, sin, fallen principalities and rulers. I want to make sure that you heard one of the enemies listed there is Satan himself. In fact, an angel. I want to spend a moment answering the question, will that fallen angel be made forever a conquered enemy of Christ and his people? To answer that question, let me start with, where did the devil come from? Where did the devil come from? So if I might add, I think seeing the garden in Genesis 1, it's where we first see in the chronological narrative of Scripture, it's where we first see this deceiver, the enemy of God's people. In that scene, it is much easier for me to comprehend, or historically, easier for me to comprehend Adam and Eve's fall, than it had been for me to comprehend where did Satan come from. Because the inroad to the created heart to doubt God came from an agent of temptation. Satan, who we know later, we don't know that in Genesis 1 and 2, but we know later that Satan is that serpent. And he comes and whispers the lie to their heart. And their created heart succumbs to the temptation. But where did the whisper come from? Whoever whispered to the whisperer? That's a more legitimate question. So where did he come from? Well, I want you to understand, first of all, Satan was created by God. We know that the angels are created sometime prior to the creation of the earth. The reason we know that is because Job describes that those angels who watched our Christ create, sang hymns of praise while he did it. 
makes sense to me. That's what they did. They were there. They saw it. One angel in particular. The Bible says in Isaiah and Ezekiel, various texts, that this angel, an archangel, is created by God and created in a way where he had extraordinary adorning. If you lined up all the angels that God had made, all of them, and said, which one of these angels looks different than the rest? All of us would get it right. We would say, that one, wow, that's brighter, that's more beautiful, that one. And Ezekiel and Isaiah describe it that way. That was all it took. That was all it took. Listen closely because this says a lot about Jesus. All it took for any created thing to succumb to rebellion against this creator was to be impressive. It's all it takes for any created thing to rebel against its creator is to consider itself impressive. Lucifer fell in pride for his beauty. Jesus, in Hebrews 1, is above everything else and never falls. Why? Because he's not a created thing like Satan is. He could be proclaimed to be from beginning to end the exalted one. And instead of rebelling, even though equality with God was a thing that he didn't have to steal, it was his already, he humbles himself to death, even death on the cross. Look at the difference. Will Satan finally be crushed by the serpent crusher? Yes. Yes, his end is in Revelation 20. The devil's going to try to arouse one last assault against the lamb. One final charge against God's people. And the Lord Jesus will rain down fire from heaven and destroy him. And cast him forever into the lake of fire. He will make the enemies his footstool. Therefore, he is not only seated. All the enemies are not only becoming his footstool. But he is the all-sufficient savior. This concludes the sevenfold cross-reference about the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is better, seated at the right hand, reigning as Lord on behalf of his bride, the church. And here's my questions. What do you need to which Jesus is not the answer? What do you need to which Jesus is not the answer? If I, if I am just... just I'm going I'm to press away the wants and I'm going to get into the real needs. Let me just ask you these three. Do you know that you need to be pardoned from sin? Jesus is the answer. See him exalted and know that God has accepted the sacrifice of his, of his blood on your behalf. Pressing away the wants. Do you need to be made right, reconciled to the Father? There is Jesus seated at the throne of God, ever interceding for you on the basis of his perfect work at Calvary. 
do you need life now and forever? I mean, really life. There's a way that you can have a lot of days that don't really matter. In fact, don't matter at all. Do you need life? Jesus is the answer. A new heart, new strength, new will, new obedience. From his heavenly throne, he sends the provision of aid for his people. So I get to the end of Hebrews 1, and I, the question struck me. You know, in John 6, Jesus says some really, really hard things, like eat me, drink me. And, and a bunch of people who were getting free food went, well, this just got weird. And so they're, they're going to take off. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they take off. And he turns around and he looks at true followers. And he says, you going to leave too? And they say, where else could we go? For the things we now understand that we need, there's nowhere else to go. We're with you. That's it. This is our final hope. I would get to the end of Hebrews 1 and I would just ask you, I would ask my heart, heart, where else would you go? As we think about Christ sustaining the afflicted, I wonder if today your fear can be described in maybe one of two things. I wonder if today you're afraid of dying. Did you hear the psalmist in Psalm 102 say, I lay awake at night? I wonder if that's you. Maybe your age, maybe a diagnosis, and you lay awake at night. Are you afraid of dying? Would you turn your Bibles to Hebrews 2? Verse 14. From our catechism this morning, Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death had been, used to be, Subject to the lifelong slavery of fear. Jesus Christ is the solution to the need of being afraid of dying. But there might not be enough of us this morning who are honest about our own mortality. And so maybe the thing that we're more afraid of is not dying, but living. Maybe to die is gain. I mean, look, have you seen the news? And so you might say, I don't, I don't have a terminal illness or anything, but maybe I'll get one. So maybe your fear is living. Maybe you're afraid of living faithlessly. Maybe you're afraid of living with terrible oppression and difficulty. 
Maybe you're afraid of financial despair. Maybe you're afraid of the economy or a global pandemic or politics or growing animosity toward Christianity. Maybe you're afraid of spending the rest of your days in a challenging marriage. Maybe you're afraid of raising children in a way that is inadequate or wanting and seeing them wander from the truth. Maybe you're afraid of living. And I want you to understand from this text that Jesus is at the throne of God ever interceding for his people. He is the final word. He is the superior son. He is the sustaining Lord. Jesus Christ right now is sustaining us. Our existence is frail. We have nothing in ourselves to boast. But we look to Christ and say, where else would we go? He is resurrected from the dead, seated in glory. He is ever for me.